fun? It is great to see you. And uh, thank you, kids and trees, for that. That was fantastic. You know, I was thinking, um, some people are often a little too reserved when they're worshiping the Lord. You see the same people at a sporting event or something like that to be screaming their heads off. And uh, sometimes we can take a, uh, uh, a dim view of someone else's uh, demeanor in worshiping the Lord. And I'll tell you, there's a, there's a story about that. David's wife. She thought David's wife that was Saul's daughter she thought he was being a little bit undignified for a king. You guys remember that story? And she said, you know, you, you, look, you didn't look quite as dignified as you should have out there. And David said, I will celebrate. I will worship the Lord. And uh, you know what? She was barren for the rest of her life. I'm pretty sure I got that part of the story straight. I'm not turning to it right now. I'm going to be careful about ever taking a dim view of someone's uh, method of worship, all right? And I'll just go on record as saying, um, I like worship that's heartfelt and, uh, and worship that has a joyful noise to it. Okay. Before we dive into the word, again, a few announcements. Um, immediately following today's service, we're going to have a potluck. And I was over there a little while ago, and it smells awfully good. And uh, I'm going to try and get a better tag on what time it is right now so that I don't... Last, last week, I thought I was letting you guys out early, and then I looked, and it was, uh, it was more like an hour. My apologies, and I appreciate your patience. So potluck immediately following the service tomorrow evening at 6.30. Women's study at Marsha's house. Getting very close to the end of Acts, is my understanding. Wednesday morning at 6.15, uh, men's study. And we've made it to about the middle of Romans 8, right? It's good. And then Wednesday evening... We finished up the third chapter of Galatians. That's also at 6.30. Uh, Brother Donaldo has been really faithful in uh, leading us through Galatians. We appreciate it. So that's the stuff that's happening. Did I forget anything? I forgot something. Somebody waved at me. We having a meeting this afternoon? I saw something in the email from Brenda to talk. Is that? Are we, do, are we doing something later on this afternoon? Okay, so perhaps not a highly structured thing, but okay. Brenda put out um, uh, some plans about some remodel work, and that'd be a chance to discuss it, right? Perfect. I want to correct something I said last week. Uh, it won't be the thing you think I'm going to correct. When I was talking about how far your DNA would reach uh, unraveled and put together into end. I undershot by quite a ways. And so I just wanted to set the record straight on that. If, if all the DNA in your body, this is the very brief science fact for today. If all the DNA in your body was unraveled and all the strands were put end to end, it would reach a really long ways. And I'm going to tell you, uh, I'll say, I'm going to say, can you imagine that? But I'll just say, no, you can't imagine it. It would reach 67 billion miles, which is 2.7 million times around the Earth, about 360 round trips to the sun. Can you even comprehend that? We're fearfully and wonderfully made. Fearfully and wonderfully made. Okay. We're going to pick up in Matthew 5, where we've been for a spell, a good spell, 
and it's been a good spell in the sense that it's been a while, and it's also good in that I think it's just good. And I'm loving this, uh, this time in Matthew 5. Last week, I started into uh, verses 17 through 20, and I would say we beat up uh, verse 17 pretty thoroughly. Um, I'm going to try and wrap up today. We'll just see. We'll see by God's grace how far we get. Let's read, starting at the beginning of Matthew 5. And when he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And opening his mouth, he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled under foot of men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do men light a lamp and put it under the peck measure, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Verse 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. I just want to step back for just a minute as a reminder. Jesus isn't giving a great moral teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. He's not prescribing the formula for world peace. He's not prescribed, he's not setting down uh, the rules for can't we all just get along. Jesus is describing what the lives of his disciples will be like. He describes really what someone truly blessed of God will look like in the Beatitudes. And as Nate pointed out in, in the manner of us being salt and us being light, it's a proclamation about what we're to be. Right. I said this last week, and I'll and I'll repeat it. Um, the passage that that uh, we're looking at today has been the source of an awful lot of uh, of uh, study, and certainly uh, a source of some disagreement down through history. I used a ten dollar word last year, or excuse me, last week antinomian or antinomianism which means against the law which which is a very common term for for reformed theology people to say hey the law is done it's behind us we 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 don't want anything to do with it the reverse of that is pronomianism or like anti is against the law pro is in favor of the law or sometimes you would hear, we'll just hear the term legalism, or we'll hear the term Torahism. And I don't know if you guys have followed this, but there has been a fair amount of, there's been a fair amount in the church probably over the last 25 or 30 years of a sort of a Hebrew roots uh, movement, and, and definitely some movement of people going back and saying, hey, wait a minute. 
uh, we, th we think we should be following the law of Moses. Right? Um, and and uh, often, well, certain parts of the law of Moses, maybe not the whole thing. Um, I'd like to dive into that a little bit today, well, more than a little bit. And if you have the, uh, if you have the scripture list that I left out there, I'm not going to promise we're going to look to every one of these, but you'll notice it's kind of broken into three sections. Um, and this isn't your one-size-fits-all uh, apologetic or, or, uh, or uh, scripture list on these topics, but the, but the things in the first list are the things really that have to do with, uh, they have to do with, hey, what, did the law keep going or did the law stop or what, you know, what happened? These are the scriptures we're going to go look at, and especially as they pertain to us as believers. I'm going to put, I'm going to put out a, a big, uh, in, important statement that just goes along with anything I'm about to say, which is, I'm going to present to you guys my best understanding of what the Word says. And I won't be reluctant to tell you what I believe or what I, my interpretation about it is. But one of the reasons I like this list is uh, dig it. Dig into it. You know, I think the reason it's important for us to know where we stand on these issues is because you're going to be asked about it. You're going to have someone walk up and say, uh, you shouldn't be eating shrimp. Well, well, wait a minute. Should I be eating shrimp or should I not be eating shrimp? Because under the Old Testament law, if it came out of the water, didn't have scales on it, it was unclean. And uh, by the way, I happen to, I love shrimp. But that's beside the point. Um, or, or other instances like that. And I think it's just important for us to know what do we believe and understand about this? And what's the scriptural basis for what we believe and understand, all right? So, when Jesus says here that he came, he wanted to make sure they understood he didn't come to abolish the law, he came to fulfill the law. And then he goes on to say, until heaven and earth pass away, you notice there's two untils in verse 18. Until heaven and earth pass away, and until all is accomplished. And I pointed out last week, uh, heaven and earth haven't passed away yet. So the law is still there, and I think Jesus is making it very, very crystal clear that every element of the law is still there. And it's, and it's going to continue to be there. Then he goes on to say in 19, and if you, if you annul any part of it, and I, again, I'm reading from New American Standard. Some of you where, it's, where I said abolish, you may say uh, uh, disintegrate or, or, or uh, destroy or something like that. I'm not, I'm not trying to parse those words out necessarily. I think, I think the most important thing for us to do here is get the big picture. Let's look at some scripture because these are the scriptures, as I said, that I think address... What did Jesus and or the apostles have to say about the law? Jesus came. If I think everyone here understands dramatic changes happened. But I think the question remains, well, where does that leave the law? Where, what is our proper understanding or, or our position relative to the law? I just want to go to a few of these very quickly. And these are not cherry-picked, and these are not... Um, by any means, uh, a thorough and authoritative uh, gleaning of all of the scripture out of the New Testament that addresses this. But let's go right to Romans 10 first. Romans 10, verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Uh, there's been a lot of study about that word end. It's Greek, telos. And uh, it could mean fulfillment, it could mean final objective, it could mean, it could mean end end. Something ended. I'm just pointing that out, Romans 10.4. Paul's making it clear. 
something ended. Let's go to, let's go to Romans 2 uh, and verse 29. This is something. We had some teaching about this uh, within the last year, circumcision, true circumcision, physical circumcision. Paul's making the summary statement here, but he is a, he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit and not by the letter, by the Spirit and not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. If you stay right there, jump over to uh, the next chapter of Romans, to the 21st verse, Romans 3.21. But now, apart from the law, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Man, I wish I had about 10 minutes on each one of these verses because I think there's so much to be brought out, but I'm, gonna, I'm trying to keep moving. What are we looking at here? We're looking at places in the New Testament that address the law. What happened to the law? In this case where it says, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. That's like being, being, um, being foretold by. Witness, they were witness to it. Let's jump over to Galatians. There's a couple of, uh, couple of passages in Galatians I want to look at quickly to see how we're doing. Eh, I've got to speed up. Galatians 2. Verse 16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Stay in Galatians. Move over a chapter. To chapter 3. We're going to read three or four verses here. Starting with verse 23, Galatians 3 23, which by the way is just where we were on Wednesday night. I commented Wednesday night. I think I commented last Sunday and I'll say it again here right now. It's just absolutely incredible to me that uh, what we're studying on Wednesday night, what we're studying on Wednesday morning, and what we're talking about on, on uh, Sunday morning. Are, are intertwined exactly like this. Just, just perfectly. Galatians 3, starting with 23, but before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Stay in Galatians. 18th verse, 5th chapter. Galatians 5.18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And lastly, I just want to go back and look at in Acts Everyone here, I think, is familiar with the story. When the Gentiles started uh, accepting the gospel, the apostles had to decide, hey, what's going on? Because there were, the Jewish people were saying, well, wait a minute, they've got to get on board with Mosaic law in order to, in order to be uh, with Christ. And the apostles, this is one of the first like, really serious things they had to grapple with. And the net result of it, is here in Acts 15. I'm, tr I'm sorry that I have to compress this story so much. But if you drop down to verse 28, Acts 15, 28. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Okay, what is this? This is a letter that they sent out. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. That you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled fornication. If you keep yourself free from such things, you will do well. Okay. Again, this was their answer to, to people 
who were saying, no, they need to follow the whole law. They had to stop and grapple with it, and they said, by the Holy Spirit, we believe this is what, this is a, what we call essential. We're going we're gonna to distill it down to this. Okay, why do we go through this list? I'm just going to tell you that I think the word's pretty clear that we have righteousness through faith in Christ, not through works of the law, and that we're not bound by Mosaic law. Now, if someone came to me and said, I see it differently, I'm not going to punch him in the nose, and I'm not going to have a knockdown drag out fight with them. Uh, I think part of that is what Romans 14 talks about. That one day, and maybe we'll get there, or maybe we won't, I'll just refer to it. That one man serves one day differently than another. That, that we have individual differences in what, we're, what we believe is okay to eat, or what we don't believe is okay to eat. And Paul makes it very clear in Romans 14 that what the key thing there's two key things. <laughs> One, your conscience should be clear before the Lord. That's absolutely essential. And you could decide to eat something, and I could decide not to eat something, and we could each have a clear conscience before the Lord. That's huge. And the really important one is that if I know I'm doing something that could cause you to stumble, I don't have a right to keep doing it. Paul makes that very, very, very clear. All right? not trying to dive off into that topic, but there is, there certainly, there certainly will be instances where different people have different comfort levels or <laughs> discomfort levels with some distinct details of, of their daily lives and their, and their conviction in their heart before the Lord. Does that make sense? Hopefully this doesn't sound like gobbledygook. Okay. Now, we've talked about a, a, a passel of scripture that addresses whether or not we're under Mosaic law. And there's a lot more. And, and if any of you guys want to pick up this discussion later, uh, I'm more than happy to. And I'm eager to, and I'm eager to learn from any of you. The next thing that I want to look at, though, is when Jesus said, um, when Jesus made the statement that he talks about even the least of these commands. Like if we annul, annul it, even the least command. Well, this makes me say, hey, with verse 19, I want to, I want to, dig in here a little bit and say, okay, what, what are the great commandments and then what are least commandments? Does that make sense? What, what, first of all, what would be some great commandments? You guys should know some, I think. If I just said, Old Testament, what, what's the great commandments? Ten commandments, right? Somewhere right around there. They asked Jesus the same question and we're going to go to that answer here pretty quickly, but but we tend to revere, I mean, they're, they're, aren't they still on stone downtown? They haven't, they haven't completely torn it out yet, have they? It's still on stone downtown, yeah. Still at Congress in Washington, D.C., the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, been, been foundational, uh, foundational to our, to our nation, foundational to our form of governance. Um, those would not be the least. Jesus is saying here, hey, if the, the least little one, and we're going to look at a couple of examples of that too. First, let's look at the great ones. Let's go to Matthew 22. I want to see, what we're doing here is we're looking to see what did Jesus or the disciples have to say about the greatest of commandments, and we'll look at the least of commandments, all right? Matthew 22, start with verse I'm going to back up. I said 36. Let's go back to 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, by the way, they really liked that. 
they were, they were glad to see that he put them in their place. <clears throat> they gathered themselves together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then look what he says. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Wow. Those, the next two scriptures on your list there, those are the scriptures that Jesus is uh, quoting. The, the, the scripture about loving the Lord your God and, this, and the scripture about loving your neighbor as yourself. Those are in we won't go there right now. Those are the references in Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. Let's go to Matthew 7. Again, what are we, what are we looking at here? Great commandments. Commandments, because he made this statement, can and all the least. Let's understand the, let's understand the greatest, and then we'll go back and look at some least going to sound a little familiar. Matthew 7, 12. This is later on in the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do so for them. For this is the law and the prophets. Let me step back to make a point that I think I may have failed to. When we're here in, when we're here in verses 17 through 20 of chapter 5 of Matthew, Jesus is laying the foundation for, and Nate, I don't want to steal your thunder for next Sunday or Sundays, but he's laying the foundation. He's introducing and he's making something very, very clear to them. We've, we've said it many ways. You've heard it said many ways. Jesus is getting ready in verse 21 and on to start into, you've heard, this, you've heard it said this, but I'm telling you, this. You've heard it said this, and I'm telling you this. And in each one of those cases, I will submit to you what he's doing is he's taking the spiritual application of the spiritual principle that was behind the physical law. All right? And, uh, and to cut to the chase a little bit, that is our reverence for the law and the prophets. It's what it should be based on. Because it's the revelation of God's character. It's the revelation of God's nature. It's the revelation of God's form of government and his economy. And I don't mean economy in the dollars and cents. I just mean we gain our understanding. Like, like Paul said in Galatians, our tutor. <laughs> uh, we gained our understanding about God's character largely through the law and the prophets. Amen. Jesus is just saying here, this is called the golden rule, you guys know that. But what does it really sum up? It sums up loving your neighbor as yourself. Which I'll point out, you can't really, you can't really love your neighbor as yourself unless you love the Lord. With your whole heart. All right. We're in my second list of bullet stuff here. Why are we here? Because we're looking to say, what are great, what were considered great uh, commandments? Go back to Galatians 5. I'll look at another verse there. Galatians 5.14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Wow. The whole law whole law is fulfilled in this statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's another thing referred to here. Jump over one chapter. I don't think we have time to draw this out. Chapter 6 of Galatians, verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Now, this term, the law of Christ, it's used here and it's used uh, 
It was once in 1 Corinthians, I believe. And I'm not here to try try and draw out what it means, but the law of Christ is the law of love. I think when we're going to look at the passages in a little bit where the Pharisees came and talked to Jesus about this, but, but the summation of the law of Christ is the summation that we've just been looking at. The two greatest commandments cover it. Let's look at a couple of examples of least commandments, right? Jesus said if you, if you annul even the least of these, you'll be least in the kingdom of heaven, all right? I want to look at a couple. They should be familiar. If you, if you go look at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 22, and I do think it's helpful to look back at this because Maybe it seems odd that I would focus in on finding a least one, but that's what Jesus said. Jesus said at the least, like the least can't go away. The very, the very smallest daughter stroke of what God spoke through the law and the prophets, and it's not going away. I got two pages stuck together here. There we go. Deuteronomy 22.10. Simple statement. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. And if you look ahead or, you know, after that, um, you shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seeds. I'm back in verse 9. Um, or later on, you shall not wear material mixed of wool and linen. Um, but, I'm just, but I'm just drawing your attention to one verse here, 10. You're not to plow with an ox and a donkey together, okay? Why? Because let's jump over to 2 Corinthians because I just want to, I want everybody to be clear. What, how, how does the least aspect of the law carry on? This out carries on. Paul uses this example, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers, King James said, do not be unequally yoked. What are they t- what's he talking about? He's talking about Deuteronomy 22.10. It's a prohibition against being unequally yoked. But what is Paul doing here? Do not be bound together, verse 14, with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? He's giving the spiritual principle. He's setting forth a spiritual principle that sprung from a very short, small statement made in the law. Look at another one. You guys are familiar with it. If you still have your finger in Deuteronomy, back to verse 25, or excuse me, chapter 25, verse 4. One of those one-liner statements in fact, in my Bible, it's, uh, it has the heavy, uh, bold print, like this one was all by itself. The statement was just there. Between what we see as verse 3 and between what we see as verse 5, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. You shall not muzzle the ox. What does it mean to muzzle the ox? It means put some over his mouth so he can't eat. What's he doing when he's threshing? He's walking around threshing grain. And there's just the principle here. Don't keep the ox from being able to eat while he's doing the work for you. And there, you, you wouldn't believe how many uh, commentaries you can spin off on this. Was God worried about the ox? Was he talking about if it's your ox? Was he talking about if it's a borrowed ox? Is he talking about if it's a rented ox? This one, this one speaks to my heart in a lot of ways. As You know, I think if you have a business... And, and you employ people, you want to keep this thing in mind right here. It's a, it's a principle. Are we bound to do it by Mosaic law? No. No. Is, it, is there a scriptural principle that Paul's setting forth that I think is really important? Yeah, there is. Let's look at what he's correlating it to here. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 
1 Corinthians 9, verse 9. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. That's what we just read in Deuteronomy 25. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we should reap material things from you? Okay, this is Paul. Paul's saying here what he has a right to do. And then I think he's careful to say he's not going to exercise that right. But I've just given you two examples of if you went through Mosaic law, Jesus said, not the least, not the least of these commandments. I think we just looked at a couple that were pretty least, not muzzling and not being unequally yoked. But he draws out the spiritual application. See, this is what Jesus is getting ready to do. Sorry, Nate, I'm jumping ahead to verse 21. This is what Jesus is getting ready to do. He's setting this up for the disciples, and then he's going to turn around and say, you've heard it said you shall not murder. Here's what I'm going to tell you. You've heard it said you shall not commit adultery. Here's what I am telling you about that. Now, what is he doing? He's doing the very same thing that Paul did here, going to the, a statement from Mosaic Law, but taking it way beyond just what it meant in the flesh, just what it meant in the material world is given the spiritual application. Does that make sense to everybody? Or, or, or is this like, Steve, speed up, you're boring us. This too, uh, I realize this is probably maybe, maybe overly basic. I don't know. I hope not. I think it's important for us to understand, though. And part of the reason I think that is because you'll be asked these questions. People will come up to you and say, you know, why do you do such and so on on certain day? Or why do you this? Or why do you not do this? And uh, <laughs> you, need to be, you need to be convinced in your own heart. Like Romans 14. I think you have, to be, you have to be clear in your own conscience. But I also think it's important for us to, to be able to know the word and, and answer those kinds of questions. Okay. So if we said... The law, Christ was the end of the law, Romans 10, 4. And uh, Galatians 5, 18, if you walk by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Then where, where does it leave the law? You know, where does it, where, what is the status of the law? We read last week, Brother Rick reminded me of it uh, during the week, just before coming, Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is so if we said, well, that was true when David penned it in Psalm 19, what do we say of it today? I see the very same thing. The law of the Lord is perfect. I was telling Peg, you know, I think many years ago, it was difficult for me to think, to look at a scripture about meditating on God's law, like Psalm 1. It's a law that they meditate day and night. It would be like a tree planted by living water that brings forth its fruit in its season, you know? Or, or, or David, so many times he said, how I love your law, how I love your law. And you think, you love? Don't muzzle your ox while you're threshing? I mean, really, is that what you're, but what it is, and I think Psalm 19 sets it up so well. No, it's the precepts. It's the righteous standards. When, when we read God's law, we get, we, we, we see his image. We see his holiness. We see his purity. We see his, his mighty nature. And, and we see his loving kindness and tender mercies that extend over all of us every day. But we can never take for granted. If we say, where do we end up with the law here? Or what is the purpose? What is the purpose of the law and the prophets? For us today. Well, I'll just submit to you how much wouldn't you know about God's character? How much wouldn't you really understand in depth about what we're reading in the New Testament if you weren't tutored by the law in the first place? All right? 
I want to jump over to Second Timothy. There's a really important uh, and probably plenty familiar passage here. Second Timothy three. Verses 16 and 17, all scripture is inspired by God. Some, some say God breathed. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. We should never be dismissive about anything in the law. You look at what Jesus had to say. Look at what the apostles had to say. None of them ever said, eh, nah. They, re they, re they revered it. They loved it. But they had a clear understanding that their righteousness did not come through flesh by following the law. In fact, it became very, very clear there is no such thing as that. Righteousness through faith in Christ. Okay. I'm going to go about five more minutes. Is that all right? What does silence mean? Does that mean it's not all right? <laughs> Just stones. When you ask that question, you get stone silence. You're like, yeah. There's, there's your answer. Let's try and tackle verse 20 because I don't think this one takes as long and, you know, we could come, we could come, uh, it could be mopped up several different directions. When Jesus says in, in Matthew 5, 20, for, for, when we see for, that's a conjunction, what does it mean? It means this ties off of what I just said to you. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, I'm going to tell you, I think that was a lot more of a radical statement to them than it would be to us today. Because, I don't know, Dennis, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear Pharisee? I can tell you what comes to my mind. Hypocrite. All right? That wasn't these people's view, though. This people's view were, wait a minute, you just told me that the most righteous people I know of, they, this is what they do. This is what they spend their, all their time doing, is, be, is fastidiously doing the works of the law. Jesus, you just said, unless my righteousness is better than theirs, I'm not even going to enter the kingdom of heaven? Ooh. Can you imagine what a shell-shocked statement that was? Like I said, it doesn't sound so radical to us because we have the rest of, <laughs> we have the, rest of the history of Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees, which most of the time worked, you know, uh, didn't work out real great for the Pharisees. He was, he was highly critical of them in many, many regards. And we're going to look at that in just a minute. So just picture in your mind, Jesus says, is laying out this sermon, and Nate, I think when, we, when you very first started into the Sermon on the Mount, I think you said you timed yourself, what was it, like 10 minutes, 11 minutes? Can you imagine that? That the words, Matthew 5 through 7, could be spoken, and uh, here we are on a, here I am throwing a good 45 or 50 minutes on a couple, a couple scriptures out of it. What a condensed, compact, and really mind-blowingly radical thing that Christ taught. Let's, go, let's look over in Matthew. I want, to look at a, I want to look at a couple of these interactions he had with the Pharisees. Just remember, these people, when they heard Jesus say this, boy, that was like Jesus just called out the most righteous people that they could imagine and said, your righteousness has to exceed theirs. Matthew 22, 
Let's start in uh, let's start in verse twenty-nine. You remember this is where the Pharisees they came and they said, "Hey, um, excuse me, was it no Sadducees?" So I'm, I'm misspeaking. Sadducees because they didn't believe in the resurrection, so they were asking Jesus trick questions about the resurrection. They came and they said, "So you know, what if?" Uh, Guy's brother dies, and then he dies, and he dies, and he dies, and he dies, and whose wife is she going to be in the, you know, in the resurrection? And Jesus said, you're mistaken, this is verse 29, not understanding the scriptures or the power of God. You are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures or the power of God. Hmm. For in the resurrection, they neither marry. He just goes on to explain why why their question really didn't even make any sense. Let's jump over to Matthew 23, just right across the page. It is in mine anyway. And I want to read a fairly lengthy thing here, but we'll go fast. Matthew 23, I'm going to start with the first verse. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do observe. That's interesting. All they tell you, do and observe. But do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. You've heard the old saying, do as I say, not as I do. As I say, not as I do. Jesus said, they're sitting in the place of Moses. And when they tell you what you ought to do, that is what you ought to do, but don't do what they do. And he's going to go on to explain it. They tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders. They themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. And they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. For they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments and they love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called by men, Rabbi. But do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher. You're all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, and that is Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. And then he goes on. This is sometimes referred to as the seven woes. Woe to you, scribes, in verse 13, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. See, it's used, almost using it interchangeably, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from men, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, even while at pretense. For a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you shall receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel about on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple... That is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he's obligated. Fools and blind men. Which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified it? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering upon it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? I'm just going to stop there because of, because of time. Um, why did Jesus say... Righteousness is going to have to surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees because he knew their hearts. He knew that they were whitewashed tombs. He knew that on the outside they could put on these really outstanding uh, looking image. They had the they had the scriptures woven in. They had and they loved the place of honor. And they were spiritually dead. Jesus called upon him. 
Jesus is simply telling his disciples and the multitude in chapter 5. You're not going to be like them. You're going to be my disciple. You're not going to be outwardly something special to look at. And you're not going to be in a struggle to see who can be in the place of the most prominence. You're going to give up your right to yourself. And I'm going to be your Lord. You will never find yourself in a power struggle like these guys were in all the time. Let me summarize real quickly. And then you can and you can come correct what I said afterwards. How's that? Jesus was setting up the disciples to understand something very, very critically important. God's law isn't going anywhere. His law is perfect. It reveals his character and nature to us, and it sets forth all these principles in it. And it is not going anywhere. There's no, there's no other interpretation you could have of uh, verse 17 and 18 than that. But he's also getting them to understand physically following the law, that's not what I'm getting ready to talk to you about. And that is not going to be the standard. The standard's not going to be a physical one. It's going to be a spiritual one. And we, we can tend to say he took it to the next level. That's a, that's a way of saying it. Remember when we read last week in Romans 8? That part of, the, part of what the expectation was was that the righteousness of the law would be fulfilled in us. Jesus fulfilled it in his life. He fulfilled it in his death. He fulfilled it in his resurrection. The righteousness of the law, the, requ the requirement is to be fulfilled in us. That's what Romans 8 says. And he goes on to describe why. And walk by the Spirit. Walking, walking by the Spirit isn't one of the ways. It's the only way. There's, there's another way. We're going to walk by the Spirit and have the righteousness of Christ or Wound around in, in the flesh. I really need to put a wrap on this. Thanks again for your patience, you guys. I love you. I really do love you. And I, and I appreciate your patience and forbearance here. Dennis, I'm going to turn it over to you. Please send communion. Thanks.